0: Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at christfellowshipnc.org. Praise the Lord. Well, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3 as we continue to make our way through the book of Ruth. And as you're turning there, we'll uh, invite any children that may be participating in our children's class. You guys can uh, head to the back there where the volunteers will be there to greet you and to instruct you in the Lord's word in that context this morning. But again, in our sermon, we're in Ruth chapter 3. And I know these are longer passages of scripture, but we never want to shy away uh, from reading God's word together. Uh, so we're going to read the entirety of Ruth chapter three just to be sure we understand the full context. And then as we do every week, we'll take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help before we dive into the truth of his word together. So let's read Ruth chapter three uh, together this morning. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we ask for your help this morning. Every single week when we gather, we acknowledge that we need the help of your Holy Spirit to understand the truth of your word. So we just want to acknowledge and give thanks for the finished work of Jesus Christ that stands in our place for his life and his death and his resurrection And the life that he now lives at your right hand, interceding for us, praying for us, even right now, this very moment. And we are thankful that because of the finished work of Christ, for all who trust in him, you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to awaken us to the truth of your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide our thoughts this morning as we hear from you uh, from Ruth chapter 3. Father, give us great wisdom as we work our way through this chapter Father, I need your help. I pray that you would allow me to speak only what is true of you, that we would not be led astray, that we would be able to see what you intend to teach us, even from a difficult chapter like this. And so, Father, we just ask you to do what you've already promised to do, that your word would go forth, that your word would be at work in us, increasing our faith, transforming us, conforming us more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I uh, think we can all acknowledge after, if you haven't read that chapter before, we just read it together. I think we can all acknowledge that Ruth chapter 3 is a strange chapter, right? Uh, Things take a really weird turn with Naomi's plan and uh, the way that she uh, instructs Ruth and how Ruth uh, actually approaches Boaz in the end. And of course, that's complicated even more by the fact that in uh, Ruth chapter 3, the name of God, uh, Lord, is only mentioned twice. And that's not necessarily unique to the Old Testament, but I think that combined with the strangeness of the chapter makes it a a hard chapter to work through and to understand what exactly we're supposed to glean from this. So, So what do we do with a passage like this, right? That's a fair, legitimate question to ask if... When you come to Ruth chapter 3 in your uh, daily Bible reading and you sit in your chair in the morning or evening, whenever it is that you read your Bible, and you want to get up from reading God's Word, challenged and convicted or even encouraged by the Word of God, what's the takeaway from a place, from a chapter like Ruth chapter 3? That's a really hard but really important question to ask as we come in front of a a narrative passage like this, a passage that tells a story. So I just want to take a few brief moments and just give a few kind of brief overriding uh, principles to keep in mind as we work through this chapter. But these, these principles would apply to any narrative storytelling kind of passage in, in scripture. So, so just a few things to keep in mind. First of all, number one. Narratives or stories, that's two, two words meaning the same thing. Narratives in the Bible always have a theological purpose. They always have a theological purpose. They are never there simply and only to recount history or to provide an interesting story. Now, they likely do and will do both of those things. It is providing history, no question about it, right? We believe in the inerrancy of God's Word. It is telling us what happened. Most of the time, Lord willing, the stories are interesting, but they're always written with a theological purpose. And that's really important to keep in mind. That, That means that our job, as we read a narrative or a story or a piece of history, In God's word, it's our job to do our best to try and discern the theological intention of the author. What is it he is trying to teach us about God? What is it he is trying to teach us about God's people through what he writes? So that's number one, always a theological purpose. Number two, everything that even godly people do in a story is not necessarily something you should do. All right, everything uh, even a godly person does in a story, is not necessarily something you should do. All right, the, the two kind of technical words that help with that is that stories in the Bible are descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. They're descriptive. They They're describing what happened, factually what occurred, but they're not prescriptive, meaning it's not telling you what you ought to do. It's very important to keep in mind. So you can't just thumb your way through the Old Testament and find somebody that did something and say, hey, they did it, so I can do it, right? Solomon was a godly guy at the time, and he took 700 wives. Let's go, right? You can't read the Bible that way, right? It's not the way you deal with, with narratives. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Which means, number three, Any prescriptive truths, any truths coming from a narrative that that we want to make commands or make a pattern of our lives must be intended by the author. We must see it in the context of the story itself. And we need to find clear places of teaching in other places of the Bible. In other words, if you can't find a command in the New Testament that says you ought to do something, then you can't just find justification for it in a story Right. You need to see it in the context of the passage itself. And you need to see a clear command in God's word that points to the same truth. And the reason that's important to keep in mind, because as you turn to these rich Old Testament narratives, right? It's, it's easy to kind of find what you want to find and create some kind of life principle and just kind of use the story as an illustration for what you want to have there. Right. Old Testament narrative stories are not simply illustrations. They are written with intention. And it's our job to do the hard work of trying to discern what the author wants to say to us. So with those, we could say more, but with those simple kind of overarching general principles in mind, our job is to put our ear down to the text, listen to what the author is saying to us, and try our best to see the author's conclusions and not draw our own. To look at the context, the words that are on the page... And see what the author of God's word has to say to us. And it's hard work. It's why Psalm 1 says we should meditate on God's Word day and night. It's why we should read it over and over again. It's why when you're uh, when you're older and you've read through the Bible 20 times, you can still glean more and more truth the 21st time you read through it because there's always more to see and more to understand because the more you meditate over it, the more you understand what it is that God is saying. It's why we do this every week as God's people. We gather around the truth of His Word. It's why we have life groups so that we can get together to work through the heart passages of scripture and try to gain deeper and deeper understanding of God's word. So what we need to do in Ruth chapter three is be sure we're listening for what the author of Ruth wants to teach us. And even in the strangeness of this chapter, there's something that God wants us to learn about himself. There's something the author has intended us to learn, and we need to try our best by God's grace to do the work of listening and discerning. And ultimately, what I think we're going to see in this chapter is that God's providence is not hindered by our imperfect strivings. God's providence is not hindered by our imperfect striving, right? This is a really important aspect of the theme of this whole book, right? We've been seeing... Ordinary providence, extraordinary redemption, that God is accomplishing extraordinary things through these seemingly ordinary events. Ruth just happens into the field of Boaz, right, who just happens to be the redeemer that they need, who just, by the end of the story, just happens to be in the line of King David and in the line of King Jesus, right? Ordinary providence, extraordinary redemption. But that providence can often happen even through the imperfect actions of God's people that God is faithful even when we falter, that God is at work for our good and for his glory, even through our stumbling steps that we take every day of our lives. I think that's what we need to see happening in Ruth chapter three. So I pray that as we work our way through, that's exactly what we'll see in the words on the page because there is, I believe, and some would disagree, but I would say there is a significant lack of wisdom from Naomi in the advice that she gives to Ruth in this passage, but yet, in spite of that, God protects and He provides and He brings Ruth and Naomi—sorry, uh, He brings Boaz and Ruth together in the end. So let's let's watch this story unfold and see how God can be at work even through the stumbling, faltering steps of His people, and how He is faithful nevertheless. So. There are three scenes of the story. I want us to just work our way through each scene, let the story unfold, and see how it is that God is at work. But but here are the three scenes. We're going to see the impatient pursuit, impatient pursuit, number two, the righteous response. That's the righteous response of Boaz. And then number three, gracious generosity, gracious generosity, impatient pursuit, righteous response gracious generosity. So let's first look at the impatient pursuit there in verses one through five. So before we jump in, I think it's really important to have a sense of the time frame of what's happening here at the beginning of chapter three. If you weren't here last week, just as a a, a brief kind of recap of chapter two, what has happened is, uh, well, if we back all the way up to chapter one, of course. Uh, Naomi, along with her husband Elimelech, went to a foreign land of Moab, uh, along with their two sons. Elimelech and the two sons die. But before the two sons died, they had married two Moabite women. And so Naomi is left without the family she went into Moab with. She comes out with just her two daughters-in-law, but ultimately only one sticks with her that is Ruth, and returns to Bethlehem when God visits his people and, and ends the famine that they fled from to begin with. And so in chapter 2, they they've uh, Naomi and Ruth have returned uh, to Bethlehem. And Ruth is going out to try to find a place where she can glean food so that she and Naomi can have something to eat. And when she goes out, uh, chapter 2 says she just happens to be in the field of Boaz, who just happens to be their kinsman redeemer. And what that means is, is that he is a close relative of Naomi's husband, and that he therefore, uh, by law, is able to rescue them from their plight. He is able to rescue them. It could be in a number of ways, but one of the ways that the kinsman redeemer can rescue is through marriage, through marrying a widow who did not have a male child and carry on the family name, which was of great importance in Israel. And so uh, Ruth happens into his field. He is kind to her. He provides for her. And by the time we come to the end of chapter 2, we learn that he was uh, kind to her and provided for her in an ongoing way. So you see that in the last verse of chapter 2, verse 23. So she, meaning Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Now, that time frame is important. The barley and wheat harvest would have lasted for weeks. A long time had transpired since the first time Boaz met Ruth. And when Ruth returned that first time, we see again at the end of chapter 2 the, the conversation that Ruth and Naomi have. And you see what, what she says. Uh, Naomi says there in verse 20 to Ruth, chapter 2, verse 20. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So you feel Naomi's hope rising. You ended up in the field of Boaz? He's one of our redeemers. This This is God's provision for us. And she's full of excitement. And this is not coincidence, right? It seems that Naomi is recognizing that you ended up in Boaz's field. God is at work. And then a week goes by. Boaz doesn't do anything. Another week goes by. The harvest continues. Ruth is in the field of Boaz. Nothing happens. Another week goes by. Another week goes by. Boaz doesn't seem to be taking any action. And so those who have grown children, I'm sure you've experienced this. Like, are you ever going to get married? Are you going to marry somebody? Is anything going to happen? Naomi's growing impatient. What's going to happen? Boaz isn't showing any interest. He's our kinsman redeemer. And I think ultimately what happens is Naomi grows impatient. Weeks have gone by. She anticipated that God would provide Boaz for their family. He's the kinsman redeemer. It all just seems to be too perfect for that not to happen. And yet it hasn't happened. So Naomi hatches a plan to try and bring it to pass. That's why she says in verse one, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? That's what she means by the word rest. This is the exact same word that she uses in chapter one, verse nine, when she tells Orpah and Naomi to return to Moab. And she says, so that you may find rest in the home of your future husband that she wants to provide for Ruth by bringing a marriage into being and providing rest for Ruth in that way by her marrying Boaz. So Naomi's now taking on this responsibility. She sees this as something she needs to seek and pursue. You even see that language in verse 1? Should I not seek rest for you? Now, Naomi is saying, I'm going to take care of this, right? I'm not sitting back and waiting anymore. I'm going to seek rest for you. I'm going to take action to try and bring this to pass. What I think and what I seem to see that God is doing by providing Boaz for us. Now, now let me make clear. This is not necessarily a bad thing. It is not bad to see how God may be at work and to take action. There are certainly times that we are supposed to wait on the Lord. But there are also times we're supposed to move and we're supposed to take action, right? Even the Apostle Paul says that he toils and labors with all of the energy that God provides for the sake of the gospel, right? There is hard work and faithfulness. We're not always supposed to just sit back and do nothing. So I offer no criticism, nor do I think there's criticism in the text for Naomi wanting to take action to bring this to pass. That's not the issue. The issue is that the plan she unveils, I would say, is sketchy at best, okay? I think it's sketchy at best. So Naomi knows, uh, apparently, that Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor that very night where the winnowing of the barley is taking place. So the harvest has come to an end, now that the, uh, the threshing floor, there when, when are we out the barley. There's a lot of speculation you can read about, about what the nature of the threshing floor was. It was kind of a, a sketchy place itself where stuff happened. We don't really know for sure, but we do know. But by context, when they got done working late into the night, there was a feast of some kind that they had. Uh, and that was a well-known reality. It was likely done at night because they were able to take advantage of the the stronger breeze that was blowing at night to, to winnow out the barley so the grain would fall to the ground and the chaff would be blown away. And so they probably worked uh, late into the night, then had a late dinner, uh, which seems to be what took place. So Naomi knows all of this. And she says to Ruth, look, Boaz is going to be there tonight. He's going to be there at the threshing floor when, when all this is taking place. And so what I want you to do, uh, she says to her there in verse three is wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. So essentially what Naomi is saying to Ruth is cleaning the harvest, providing for, uh, for Naomi. And she says, you need to clean up. And when it says anoint yourself, it, what she's saying is put on perfume, right? I want you to smell good. You don't smell great right now, Ruth, right? You've been working hard, right? The first time, that, that, sorry, but this is, I just thought, you know, as I was studying, I thought about the first time Ruth met Boaz, She was probably looking pretty rough, right? She'd been out working all day, sweating. She probably didn't smell great, right? There wasn't deodorant. So she'd been working hard, right, faithfully, doing what she ought to have been doing. And at this point, Naomi is saying to Ruth, clean up. She's essentially saying, make yourself attractive. Put on perfume. The ESV says, put on a cloak. Some translations say, put on your best clothes. We could debate about that, but ultimately the point is the same, regardless of whether whatever translation you go with. The point is, Naomi is saying to Ruth, make yourself attractive. I want you to make yourself attractive again. That's not wrong. It's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's verse four where things begin to go a little south, right? So wash up, put on perfume, make yourself attractive, go to the threshing floor Don't make yourself known to Boaz, so kind of stay hidden away for a while. And then the final piece of advice comes in verse 4. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet or his legs, his lower extremities is what that means. Uncover his feet or legs and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, what in the world kind of advice is that to Ruth? What is Naomi going for here? Well, I think without question, this is unwise advice. Now, some try to claim that this is some kind of official, acceptable ritual in that culture, that this is how women would have communicated their desire for marriage to a man. But there's, there's no evidence for that outside of this. And I would say there's even no evidence Inside the passage itself, that the text doesn't even hint at that. Naomi doesn't say something to Ruth, like, you know, go and do this, as is the practice of our people, right? There's no there's no clarity that this is some kind of well-known ritual kind of thing that would happen. And I would argue that in fact the text itself, in verse the end of verse 13 beginning in verse 14, makes clear that even Boaz viewed this as a a sketchy, shady situation, right? Because he says, uh, by the end of it all, like, you know, wake up before anybody can recognize each other, and you need to leave before anybody knows that you were here. He wants to protect her reputation. He doesn't protect her reputation by saying, well, this is an acceptable practice. Everybody will understand, right? That's not Boaz's attitude about it. In fact, it's the exact opposite, And so I think it's a lack of discretion by Naomi, and it makes some people uncomfortable. And so they add this story of some kind of ritual that happened. But the reality is is that God often works through the unwise decisions that his people make. I think that's clear. We see it in many places in the Old Testament. And what was happening is Naomi was trying to take things into her own hands. She saw an opportunity. She saw where she perceived God to be at work, and it wasn't happening in her time frame. And so she makes some really bad decisions. So if you're, if you're uncomfortable as you read Ruth chapter 3, I would say you feel exactly the way the author of Ruth wants you to feel. You're supposed to feel uncomfortable when you read this because it's a very uncomfortable situation that Naomi has put Ruth in. And look, this kind of desperation that seems to be happening in Naomi is a, is a really dangerous place to be. And we can all fall victim to it, right? We can see something that God seems to be doing, and it's a good thing. It could be a righteous outcome, but there are all kinds of shortcuts we could take to get there that would not be pleasing to God. And we try to force God's hand and do it our way instead of doing it his way. Look, churches fall victim to this all the time. It is ultimately what this is. It's pragmatism. It's the ends justify the means, right? It's a good thing for people to be coming to church to be exposed to the gospel. So churches sometimes will do whatever it takes just to fill up a room and in the midst of doing it, they lose the gospel and they lose the truth of God's word, right? It's it's pragmatism. It's trying to get to a righteous outcome using unrighteous actions. And we can all be tempted to do that from time to time in our impatience to see God at work. But God cares about how we do things, Right, Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In other words, we don't have a right to achieve righteous outcomes in unrighteous ways. God wants us to honor him with every decision that we make and live lives pleasing to him with every action that we take. That's what he wants. That's how he has designed us as his children and as followers of Jesus. So this isn't an excuse for passivity or for not working hard. I'm just saying, let's do it the way God has called us to do it. Right? We see this. This is exactly the kind of decision-making that happened with Abraham and Sarah. So earlier in Genesis, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have offspring more than you can count. But Abraham and Sarah had not been able to have children and they wait and they wait and they wait for a child and a child never comes. They were 10 years. They waited and a child never came. And so Abraham's wife, Sarah, comes up with her own plan. God wants to bless us with children. God wants us to bless us with offspring. So I'm going to come up with my own plan. Hey, Abraham, here's my maidservant, Hagar. Why don't you have a child with her? And that'll be the offspring that God wants for us. Sarah and then Abraham, hears Sarah. He's like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And of course, that was an unrighteous, wicked thing to do. And it did not work out well for Sarah. But in spite of it, in spite of it, God kept his promises. They had to wait much, much longer even after that 10 years. But eventually, in God's timing, not Abraham's timing, not Sarah's timing, in God's timing, he brought them their child, the promised child. And they tried to take the unrighteous shortcut. You see, what Sarah needed from Abraham in that moment is for Abraham to say to Sarah, that's a terrible idea. Let's wait. But what we have in this story is the righteous Boaz, right? Who handles this and responds with righteousness. And so let's look at the righteous response from Boaz beginning in verse 6. Verse 6 says to us that uh, Ruth goes down to the threshing floor and she does exactly what her mother-in-law commanded her to do. She stays hidden, uh, for until, uh, it's nighttime until Boaz has finished his meal and he drank his wine and his heart's merry. Now, I want to be clear even here. There's no indication in this text that Boaz is drunk. That is not what's happening here, right? Did he have wine? Yes. But he was is simply saying it was the end of a long day of hard work. He ate his meal. His stomach was full. He was satisfied at the end of a long day. He drank his wine. He was certainly relaxed. And he laid down at the end of the heap of grain. And he was out for the night, satisfied with a long day of hard work. Now, just out of a point of interest, the reason people speculate that Boaz slept there is it was probably the habit of owners to sleep in the area of the piles of grain to protect it from potential animals that may come and take it or from thieves who may come and take the grain. We don't know. Maybe that's why, but however it works out, Boaz laid down there and he was out for the night, right? He was good to go. He was comfortable. And then it says at that point, when he laid down there in verse 7, Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet, just as Naomi had told her, and laid down. Now, the way the text is written, it doesn't seem that Boaz woke up immediately because the next verse says, at midnight, which seems to be later. Now, we don't know how much time had passed, but some period of time passed between when Ruth uncovered his feet and lay down and when Boaz eventually woke up. But there, uh, verse 8, at midnight The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet, right? That would be strange, right? If you're a parent, you know what it's like, right? One of the most odd experiences is friendly, but... One of the most terrifying things that can happen in sleep is you wake up and your child's face is just right there in front of you and you about fall out of bed because you're just absolutely terrified in the middle of the night why this person is staring at you. And so here Boaz wakes up and there's a woman laying at his feet. He has no clue who she is, where she came from, right? Who knows what's going through Boaz's mind in that moment, right? he's a wealthy landowner. Maybe he thinks some woman is trying to frame him, trying to get money from him, right? He has no idea. He wakes up. He probably smells the perfume. He's like, what in the world is going on? And he says there, uh, and then we know he didn't know who it was because he says in verse nine, who are you? Who are you? What in the world are you doing here? Which again, by the way, he wasn't like, oh, my feet are uncovered. This must be a ritual, right? (laughs) This this isn't what was happening. Who are you? What are you doing here? And Ruth answers in verse 9, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, some translations say spread your garment or spread your covering over your servant." It could be translated that way, but I'm thankful that the ESV kept the word wings. And I think that's important and intentional because earlier in chapter two, when Boaz meets Ruth for the first time, chapter two, verse 12, he says to her, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth is not making some sensual, provocative approach to him by saying, spread your wings over. That's not what she's doing. She's saying, will you protect me? It's the same word. The word wings is the same in both places. Will you be my protector? Because you are our kinsman redeemer. You are the one who can rescue us in this moment, Boaz. Will you... Be the one. So it's not some kind of sensual advance. I want to be clear about that. But it is Ruth essentially in those words, not the ritual, but with those words, Ruth is essentially proposing marriage to Boaz, right? That's essentially what she's doing. She's saying, I want you to marry me, to put your protective wing over me, and to redeem me. And Boaz knows that's exactly what she's saying, which is why he responds the way he does. In verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So here we have a little bit of insight as to why perhaps Boaz for weeks and weeks and weeks of the harvest had not approached Ruth. It seems that Boaz thought there's no way she would want to marry me, right? I'm an older guy. She's a young woman. She would have zero interest in me. But yet here, when he hears Ruth's words, what he says is, this is a a kindness from you. Your concern, Ruth, has not been about marrying some young, strong, attractive man. Your concern has not been about lining your pockets with wealth. No, your concern has been about your mother-in-law, Naomi, and the namesake of her husband, Elimelech, and your deceased husband, Malon. That's your concern, Ruth. If that shows your integrity That shows who you are, which is why he later says in verse 11, everybody knows Ruth, everybody knows you're a worthy woman. This is who you are. This is what I love about this. What Boaz finds attractive in Ruth is not that she washed up. It's not that she smelled good. It's not that she was an attractive young woman. What he values in Ruth is that she is a worthy woman. She is a woman of integrity. And for that, he is thankful. And so he says in verse 11, because of that, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. I will marry you and redeem you. But there is one, there is one caveat. He says, look, there's actually, you're not aware of this, but there is a redeemer who is nearer than you, meaning he is a closer relative than I am. And so he says to Ruth, look, we're going to have to wait and see, because if he wants to redeem you, then he has, by law, he has the right to do that, not me. So we're going to have to see how things transpires. But if he does not redeem you, then I'm all in, right? I'm going to be the one. I would love to do this. I would love to take you as my wife. Now, it's fascinating here to compare Boaz's response to Naomi's desperate plan, right? Naomi is impatient, impatient. It seems that she's manipulative in what she asked Ruth to do. She's putting Ruth in a really bad situation. But here's Boaz. He's not trying to manipulate anything. He says, I'm going to trust the Lord. However it plays out, it plays out. God is sovereign over this. And what I care most about Ruth is for God to be honored and for you to be cared for. And there were lots of things that Boaz could have done in that moment to kind of manipulate things to make it work out his way, right? Right. I mean, he could have done things in that moment to prevent Ruth from being able to marry the other kinsman redeemer, but he refuses to do it. He's only going to do what is the righteous thing to do. He wants to care for Ruth. That's what he's motivated by. Boaz is choosing patience and he's choosing faith and he's trusting the outcome to the Lord. And as we mentioned earlier, Verses 13 and 14, I think both show us how unfortunately shady of a situation this was, right? With him saying, look, remain here tonight, lay down, wake up before anyone can recognize you, be sure no one knows that you were here, right? That lets us know that this wasn't a great situation that Naomi put Ruth in, but yet it also tells us just how righteous Boaz really was. That what he wants to do is ensure that that no one knows she came to the threshing floor because he wants to protect her reputation. He doesn't want Ruth to be accused of anything improper because he knows that what she did could easily be interpreted that way. Furthermore, this tells us that nobody knew Ruth was there, that this was a moment of privacy that nobody else knew about. Boaz could have done whatever he wanted in that moment and nobody potentially would have known about it. But what Boaz cares about is the eyes of God, not the eyes of man. And what he's motivated by is honoring God, acting righteously, and protecting Ruth. And it is his intervention in this situation. It is his. Righteous response that protects Ruth from Naomi's unwise plan. I mean, there are so many ways this situation could have gone wrong, right? Boaz could have panicked in the moment. He could have been like, my, now my reputation is going to be ruined. And so what he could have done is immediately started announcing loudly to anyone who would listen that there's a seductress woman laying at his feet trying to lead him into sin, right? It would have ruined Ruth. There would have been no marrying for Ruth at that point. He could have publicly rebuked her actions. Ruth could have been seen by someone else sneaking in, and then both Ruth and Boaz's reputation would have been ruined. They could have given in to temptation in that moment of darkness and quiet and privacy in the middle of the night. There were so many ways this could have gone wrong, but what we have standing in the gap is righteous Boaz protecting Ruth and protecting her from Naomi's bad decision-making. Boaz was a gift of God's grace to Ruth and Naomi. He was a gift of God's grace to Ruth and Naomi, and it was God's grace alone at work in that situation to protect everyone from accusation, from sin, and from failure. Listen, this is really good news for us, that God is able to protect us from the bad decisions that we make. God is able to protect us from our lack of wisdom and even keep us from sinning against him. That's really good news, brothers and sisters. I mean, we see this not exactly the same, but similar situation. Again, if we reach back to Abraham, uh, in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham is traveling through with his wife Sarah through another kingdom. And the king there is Abimelech. And apparently Sarah was an incredibly attractive woman, right? We don't, she was old, but incredibly attractive, right? In her 80s, but uh, Abraham's a couple of different times worried about other kings wanting to take her. And Abraham's worried about that the king would kill him and take Sarah. So they come into Abimelech's kingdom and Abraham did this on two different occasions. But here he lies, about Sarah and says, well, she's my sister. She's not, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Again, unwise, is selfish of Abraham. He's trying to protect himself from being killed. Even if it means Sarah is going to be taken into the court of the king and essentially raped. And sure enough, Abimelech takes Sarah into the court of the king because Abraham told Abimelech that Sarah is his sister. And in the middle of the night, in Genesis chapter 20, God comes to Abimelech in a dream and he says, you're in trouble. (laughs) And he warns Abimelech. And Abimelech's response to God is, I didn't know. I didn't touch her. (laughs) And listen to what God says to Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream. So this is God speaking to Abimelech. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. I kept you from sinning against me. And I did not let you touch her. But God kept Boaz from sinning against Ruth. He protected Ruth from that dangerous situation. It was his kind and good providence at work. Right? Abraham made a really terrible decision. It could have resulted in Sarah being raped. It could have resulted in Sarah's death. It could have resulted in Abimelech being punished because he didn't know and bringing ruin to another kingdom. A lot of terrible things could have happened because of his unwise decision. But God was gracious. God was gracious. He protected Abimelech. He protected Sarah. He protected Abraham, even though Abraham made a foolish decision. And that's exactly what we see playing out in Ruth chapter 3. Naomi and Ruth, following her instruction, made some really bad decisions. But God was gracious, and he protected. And praise be to God, he does that for us almost every single day of our lives, brothers and sisters. He takes our stumbling steps, our unwise decision, and he protects us from sin and from going directions that are not pleasing to him because our Savior is a kind and gentle Savior And that brings us into the final, the final act of Ruth chapter three, which is gracious generosity, gracious generosity. Look at verses 15 through 18. God didn't just protect Naomi, Ruth and Boaz from sin. He didn't just keep Boaz from sinning or keep Ruth from sinning. No, he continued to show his abundant grace toward Naomi and toward Ruth, right? So of course, grace is shown in the fact that uh, Ruth was protected, but even beyond that, he just continues to provide. So you see there in verse 15, Boaz says to Ruth, look, I don't want you to go back empty-handed. I want to continue to provide for you. So bring the garment you're wearing, and I'm going to, so this outer cloak that you're wearing, you know, take that off. I'm going to pour more grain into this for you. And so he measures out Uh, Six measures of barley and puts it on her. This would have been a load to carry. This would have been a lot of grain and very heavy. And she carries that back to Bethlehem, having not been found out. No one knows what went down. In verse 16, she comes to her mother in law, and her mother in law, Naomi, says to her, How did you fare, my daughter? And Ruth tells her all that the man had done for her. Now, here's what's fascinating. The author of Ruth doesn't summarize the conversation that took place between Ruth and Boaz for us, though certainly Ruth recounted those things to Naomi. What does the author focus on? What what, what words do we have from Ruth's response to Naomi in verse 16? Sorry, verse 17. Ruth says to Naomi, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, the reason that's fascinating is because, once again, the narrator, the author of Ruth, focuses in on Naomi. And do you remember at the end of chapter 1 what Naomi said when she returned to Bethlehem from Moab? At the end of chapter 1, Naomi says, The Lord is against me. I left Bethlehem full. I have returned empty. Same word that Naomi uses there, Ruth uses here, empty. And I think this is the author of Ruth. It's it's his way of saying to us, reminding us once again, Naomi is not empty because Boaz is providing for her. She is not empty. This kinsman redeemer, a gift from God himself, is providing for her. He continues to provide. Yes, he has provided the grain, but he is also saying to us, she is not empty handed because Boaz will in the end redeem their family. He will redeem Ruth. He will marry her. He will carry on the family name. And sometimes I think this gets lost, right? Remembering that Naomi is Ruth's deceased husband's mother-in-law, or a deceased husband's mother, Ruth's mother-in-law. Even if they marry, she bears no direct relation to Boaz. And yet he wants to care for her. He is caring for Naomi because he understands that this isn't just about him. It's not just about the fact that Ruth has shown him kindness and wants to marry him, and he sees that as a gift of God to him, and that's a good thing. No, he also sees this as him providing for Naomi's family, providing for her deceased husband, Elimelech, providing for Ruth's deceased husband, Malon, and doing the righteous thing and redeeming this family and carrying on the family name. You see, Boaz continues to go above and beyond to provide for Ruth and Naomi. He is a righteous man, but he is also a generous man. He responds with righteousness. He also responds with generosity to Ruth and to Naomi as their kinsman redeemer. And so I just want to remind us that just as God providentially provided a kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth, he has done the same for us. This is how God operates This is what God does. Remember, what we're supposed to see in this chapter is that God brings his purposes to pass even though we stumble our way through life, even though we try to throw every obstacle in the way of God's purposes, he works through them and he works in spite of them and no stumbling steps of man could prevent God from bringing his promised offspring into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, right? That's the story of the Old Testament, (laughs) At every step of the way, it seems humanity, his people are trying to keep his promises from coming to pass. And God keeps saying, I'm going to be faithful anyway. I'm going to be faithful anyway. I'm going to be faithful anyway. You can't stop me from keeping my promises. And we see it play out here in Ruth chapter 3, and we see it play out in our lives each and every day when God continues to pour out his faithfulness on us. You see, Ruth is the story of how God brought King David ultimately into the world, and it gives us a small taste of how God also, in the end, faithfully brings Jesus into the world. And it reminds us that Jesus is our redeemer. And just as God was faithful to bring him into the world, he will be faithful to keep us that we might join Jesus one day in the new heavens and the new earth. He will sustain us and keep us. He is faithfully working in our lives to bring about our redemption every single day, even on our bad days, when we make really dumb, stupid, unwise decisions. Even when we falter and stumble, he remains faithful. This is who our God is because he has sent his son to die in our place. He sent his son to bear his wrath in our place, to suffer for us, to live a perfect, righteous life in our place. He did above and beyond what we could ever ask or think for us. Therefore, he's not going to leave us. He's not going to say, hey, you stumbled today. I'm done with you. No, he sent his son and he's made you his own, just as Emery prayed. He has adopted us as his children. Therefore, he's going to keep us to the very end, even on our worst days. He remains faithful. And he is a promise-keeping God. This is our gentle and kind Savior, just as Matthew twelve twenty says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. This is always who he has been. This is always who he will be. And this is who he was in Ruth chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your kindness, for your generosity, for how you work, for your purposes, for our good, for your glory, even in the midst of our unwise, bad decisions. Father, you sustain us. You keep us. You are a faithful, promise-keeping God. And so, Father, we are thankful for the righteous life of Jesus that stands in our place. That even our worst days, we still claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we do, though, pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would be at work in us, sanctifying us, that we would be like Boaz, that we would be a righteous people who are willing to patiently wait on you and to never take the shortcuts, to never pursue unrighteous actions, to try and bring about righteous outcomes. And so, Father, I pray that we would see in him an example of who we ought to be. And we pray that you would bring it to pass as we keep our eyes on Jesus.